Uh, instead of jumping right into our teaching text today, I want us to do a little spiritual exercise. And so I want us to meditate first on a scripture passage from the Apostle Paul. And what I'm going to ask you to do in just a moment is I'm just going to ask you to close your eyes. And I'm going to read uh, some words from the Apostle Paul. And then I'm going to read them again at a slower pace. And as I'm doing that, I want you to listen to these words spoken over you. And then I want you to reflect on your own life. And I want you to think about the words as they're being spoken. And I want, to, I want you to think about your own heart, your own life, your own soul. And then we're going to pause for a brief moment of silence for reflection. And then I'll read our teaching text for the day. So if you will, just close your eyes with me for just a moment. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians 1 verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of others or of God? Or am I trying to please people? For am I now seeking the approval of others or of God? Or am I trying to please people? And now for this morning's teaching text, Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. You can open your eyes. This passage hits me personally, I don't know about you, but hits me Square in the chest. Because this passage exposes what is probably, my wife could probably attest to this, the primary struggle in my life. And I suspect a struggle for many of you as well. And that is this need that we often have to perform for people. A need to be seen by people. A need to be recognized by people. An incessant craving for approval from others. And Jesus, in this passage, in the Sermon on the Mount, which we've been teaching through for the last several weeks, Jesus is forcing us to answer this question. Who is the primary audience of your life? Who is the audience of your life and what is the reward? What is it that you want from them? Who are you living for and what is it that you want from them? This is the questions Jesus is forcing us to ask. Who is the primary audience of your life and what is the reward that you want from them? Will you guys pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, thank you for your son Jesus who lived and died in our place and offers his life for ours. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, and God give us courage to obey your word today. Amen. Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness in order to be seen by others. Jesus is speaking into a context where there are social benefits in this culture to appearing a certain way. Jesus is speaking to a primarily Jewish audience that is I mean, it's almost exclusively Jewish. And in that culture at that time for these people, the way that they would earn the acceptance of others, the way that they would be well thought of or popular or respected within their group, the way that they would gain influence was to be seen as religious. You see, for Jewish people, 
especially at that time, religion was at the center of their culture and their identity. We talked about this a little bit throughout this uh, study on the Sermon on the Mount is that they're in the middle of the Roman Empire and the Roman Empire is trying to strip them of their identity and trying to, to force them into sort of the larger culture. But what made them them was their religious commitments. And so to be accepted, to be approved of in this culture meant you had to be religious. And so every person in Jesus's audience would have felt the pressure not only to be faithful or pious in their religious commitments, but they would have felt pressure to appear pious, not only to be faithful, but to be seen being faithful. And Jesus kind of offers here in this passage three practices that people that he noticed people would use to show off just how religious they were. To practice their righteousness before others to be seen. The first one, he says, is giving. He says, thus, when you, this is verse two. He says, thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give, give, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. There's a lot that happens in that little paragraph right there. But what Jesus is doing is he's painting a picture of somebody who walks into the temple with a trumpet, with a parade, and they, they got their wallet out. They're like doing the Benjamins thing like the, you know, and they're like they're they're drawing attention to themselves about how how generous they are. And Jesus is using hyperbole here because there's really no evidence uh, that anybody in that culture ever actually did this. But several Bible scholars have pointed out that the offering plate in the temple was often a metal collection bin. And so people would come, when they would come into the temple to give, they, they had this metal collection bin and they gave in coins. And so they would, they would, there would be pride at how loud their offering made. So if they, you know, they brought in, you know, like a sack full of, you know, coins, and it's like, clang, 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 clang. And then, like, as they're doing that, there's this pride welling up within them. They're like, look at all these people are hearing just how loud. And everybody's probably turning their heads like, what is that noise? Somebody's giving a lot of money. There are accounts of people that would do this where they would throw their money really hard in the bin so that people could hear it. And they would take pride at the literal volume of their offering. And Jesus even points out in Mark chapter 12 and Luke chapter 21 why it would have been so this is why it would have been so humiliating for that widow who only gave two coins. Because everybody's waiting in line to go give in the offering plate and it's you know these showers of coins or whatever and then here comes this widow and you just hear clink clink she gives two coins. And Jesus commends her and he says that's how you give. That's how you do it. Because she wasn't giving for the approval of others. She was giving out of faithfulness to God. And the truth is, that person who dumps a whole bag of nickels in there, that might be just a small fraction of what they're giving. But for that widow, that was everything she had. And Jesus says, I'm commending her for her generosity. He says, don't give like those people do that sound the trumpet. But then he talks about prayer. He says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. And we'll come back to hypocrites in a moment. For they love to stand up and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. But Jesus says, truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. 
But when you pray, remember, Jesus isn't saying don't pray. He isn't saying don't give. He says when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. And I think what Jesus is getting at is he's asking us, do your prayers overflow from a relationship with God or are they for a crowd? Are they fancy words? Or are they empty phrases? Are you praising? Are you pray, when you pray, are you praying horizontally or are you praying vertically? And this is what Jesus is calling out here. Those that there were, that there were people that would stand on the street corner and they would pray these impressive prayers for show or they would walk into the temple and when they prayed, they would use these big words. They would speak in like King James language and Father, thou art in heaven and thou and this and that and wings of eagles and you know, they're, they're like using whatever. And you're like, I don't even know what they're saying. They're just using big words. And Jesus is calling those people out. And he's also calling those people out who have a tendency to pray really well in public, but have no private prayer life. Those who will stand up and pray in church, but then when they go home on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, there's no communion with God. And he's calling them out and he calls it hypocrisy. And one of the things I've noticed, I've been going to churches for years and one of the things I've noticed that when you attend churches is there's, you know, they're often in a small group or at a prayer meeting or even on Sunday mornings, there often be times where you pray in groups. We've all been there. And there are always, anytime you're in a group praying and, you know, it's like, I'll start and then so-and-so will finish and then anybody in between, just speak up and pray when you feel led. When you pray in groups, there's always one or two people that are happy. They're like the first ones to begin praying. And when they pray, they use big words and they're quoting Bible verses and they're like quoting like dead theologians in their prayer. And it sounds real impressive. And, full, and to be quite honest, I tend to be one of those people. I feel this pressure. I'm the pastor. I got to have a good prayer. It's got to be it's got to be real good. I tend to be one of these people. There are people that speak up first and they pray these beautiful prayers, but then there's always another one or two people who it's obvious that they don't want to pray out loud. It's so obvious they don't want to pray out loud. And sometimes it's because they feel insecure. They're like, I don't have that big vocabulary. I don't know what an Ebenezer is. And we sing it in that song at church. And like, I, what is that? But they don't have a big religious vocabulary and they maybe don't know a bunch of Bible verses that they can quote off the top of their head. And they feel insecure being around these people that are praying so extravagantly. And so most of the time they just don't pray publicly. They just pray silently. But I always love when one of these people does speak up. And you usually see them, they're shaking a little bit because they're nervous. But then their prayer is usually so simple. It's so short. God, send your spirit. God, save my child. God, be with so-and-so. And they're like, amen. And then they step away. And then the next person stands up and prays for nine minutes. <laughs> but there is no doubt in my mind that those short prayers that are prayed out of fear and trembling, there's no doubt in my mind that God hears those prayers, that God receives those prayers, and he smiles when he hears them. 
And I believe those are the prayers he will answer. But when God hears me or anybody else sounding off with these impressive prayers that are more to impress you than they are to to actually speak to God, when he hears people like me showing off, trying to sound smart or pious, I think God's looking down. He's like, who are you talking to? Because you're not talking to me. Like, who are you talking to? Jesus says that when you pray these big, fancy, empty prayers and everybody hears you and thinks you're impressive, he's like, hope you enjoy that reward because you got it. But your father who sees in secret, he didn't hear you because you weren't praying to him. You were praying to everyone else. And then he talks about fasting. He says, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, if you do this, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, fasting, if you're not familiar with what that is, it's a spiritual practice that I think Christians should practice today as well. But it's a spiritual practice of denying yourself for a a certain period of time, maybe a day or maybe a meal or maybe even uh, multiple days at a time. But it's a practice of denying yourself food or some other primary necessity of life for for an agreed upon time as as a way to focus on God and prayer. So Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. So you fast and when you're hungry and you want food, you withhold your, you, 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 you keep your, you fast from food for a meal or for a day and you go, I want to hunger after righteousness today. This is a good thing and Christians should be doing this. But it's, the point of it is it's a time to connect with God in prayer. But Jesus says there were many people in this time that they would fast and then they would look all sad and disheveled and they'd walk into the temple. Hair would be all messed up, gaunt. You know, they don't put makeup on if they're women or whatever. And the guys, they just wear their sweatpants or whatever. And they're like, oh, yeah, you know, I just don't look good. I've been fasting all day. So hungry. Jesus says, no, when you fast, fix your hair, wash your face. Don't advertise your private spirituality. Let it be between you and God. And what Jesus does here with giving, fasting, praying, is he takes three common religious practices and says, he says to the group, he says, some of you, you're doing the right things, but you're doing them with the wrong motives. And the reward you're going to get is not one from God, but rather one from man. And so back to Paul's statement. Are we living for the approval of man or for the approval of God? And Jesus has this word for those that use religiosity to impress others. It's called a hypocrite. And we hear hypocrite and we're like, yeah, right on. Get those hypocrites. Because hypocrite is like a derogatory term in our culture. But in their culture, it simply meant an actor, a thespian, a stage actor. And, he, and Jesus is saying, the people, the, those guys that are just praying on the corner real loud and using those fancy words, they're like actors, Think about it like this, like you look at actors and actresses. An actor can play the role of a loving father on television, right? And receive awards and receive applause for it. That doesn't necessarily mean that that actor is a good father in his private life or even a father at all. And this is why many people, they get, they get discouraged when they meet their celebrities, don't they? Because they go, oh, I thought you were like... You know, that character on television. They're not their character. That's a character. They're, they're acting. 
And Jesus says that those who pray to be seen, those who give as a show, those who fast as a way to to bolster their appearance, they're actually performers seeking the applause and accolades of people, not religiously pious people who are seeking the delight of God. They're actors. And listen, Jesus is not against public prayer or offering plates in church or fasting. If he was, we wouldn't have had a public prayer like literally 12 minutes ago. The great African theologian, St. Augustine, says this. It is not the being seen of men that is wrong, but doing these things for the purpose of being seen of men. The problem with the hypocrite is his motivation. He does not want to be holy. He only wants to, be, only wants to seem to be holy. He's more concerned with his reputation for righteousness than about actually becoming righteous. The approbation of men matters more to him than the approval of God. And I believe that Jesus' warning in this passage is as relevant today as it has ever been. Because in the church, we tend to do the same thing. We appear to look one way on the outside, but our hearts, our private lives, are not always in line with our public actions. Or for us younger people, what is it about us? What is, it, what is the wickedness in our hearts that thinks that every time we read the Bible, we've got to position it just right with our cup of coffee and our scone and take a picture of it so that we can post it to the world? It's almost like you didn't read your Bible. It didn't count if you didn't share it with everybody. See, we have a tendency to want to show off our private spirituality. And to be quite honest, this is a real occupational hazard for me. It's probably the, I'm no joke, this is probably the greatest spiritual struggle in my life. Because I often feel a pressure to appear like I have it all together. I have to appear smart. I have to appear confident. I have to appear moral and righteous. And I want you to like me. I want you to like me so bad. (laughs) And I want you to think highly of me. And I want you to stay at the church. And I don't want you to leave the church because I I want you to think highly of me. But the truth is that in that desire to be so well thought of, very often my public spirituality far outpaces my private spirituality. And Jesus says to people like me, he says, beware, because you're getting your reward. Kurt Vonnegut, the novelist and the playwright, says we must be careful about what we pretend to be. Matthew Henry, the great Bible teacher of the 17th, 18th century, says those who boast the most of religion may be suspected of partiality and hypocrisy in it. Listen, there's a temptation for us sometimes to appear more spiritual and more righteous than we actually are. And I know that I'm not alone. I know I'm not. We all need to remember this. And what you need to know is that the watching world can see through our religious hypocrisy so easily. They sniff it out so easily. And not only does our hypocrisy break the heart of God, but it shapes the way our neighbors see Jesus. Brennan Manning says the single greatest cause of unbelief in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him with their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Religious hypocrisy, Jesus hates it. But hypocrisy is not only a religious problem. This isn't just a time to beat up on religious people. 
It's not just a problem in the church. It's in our culture as well. Let's be honest. How, many, how much money do you think would be donated to universities if plaques and buildings weren't named after the donors? In Jesus' day, people were tempted to be religious for a show. But in our culture, I'm convinced that more and more as we become more and more divided and we become, as we become more secularized as a country, something has to come in and take the place of religion. And I think what's happening in our culture right now is politics is now becoming the religion of our, our culture. And so whatever side you're on, I mean, it, it becomes life and death and it becomes good versus evil and it becomes very religious. And we have to align with the right people. We have to align with the right politician. We have to align with the right cause. And not only do we have to align with those causes, but we have to let people know that we align with those causes. We have to share the right articles on social media. We call this, there's a term for this now. It's called virtue signaling. It's letting, I have to let everybody know where I stand on every issue. And just how, how progressive I am or just how, how conservative I am or just how, how I am. And many people today, I'm convinced, would rather post and posture about how compassionate and caring or concerned they are than they actually are willing to be in real life. Sharing a hashtag about the latest cause is not the same thing as being an activist or fighting for justice. Others of us, and when you get into our private lives, for many of us, we're driven by a constant need to please people. If you're like me, I do all those personality tests. I'm an ENTP, three on the Enneagram. I'm a golden retriever. I'm a, you know what, you've, you've done all the things, right? But if you're like me, if you have my personality type, you have this need to be successful, to be seen as important, to have an identity in, in what you do. So you overwork you tend to, you try to impress the right people. You try to be seen at the right places. Others of you, you twos on the Enneagram, you know, you beavers is what they're called, I think, in that, whatever that is. You feel like you need people to rely on you. You just have to have people that count on you. You need to be needed. So you serve everyone. You give and you give and you give. You're kind. You reach out. You love people. You help people. You give yourself. You give yourself. But then you get upset when they don't acknowledge how much you gave for them. Because you need to be needed. And even your serving of people is actually you're trying to get their approval. Because you crave it. And we all, and I go on. We all have these internal drivers that motivate us to crave the approval of others and it shapes how we live. And the question Jesus asks, and I think it's genius, is he says, what reward are you seeking? What is it that you're actually after? I love the way he frames it. He says, you can show off and impress the right people. He said, and there's a reward in that. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. You can be rewarded for acting righteous. I mean, you can rise up in the ranks in church leadership. You can, I mean, you can do whatever you want. Or even in the culture, if you appear a certain way, you can convince people to think highly of you and you can receive the applause of people. You can be respected. You can be popular. You can be well thought of. And that's not a terrible thing. We love those things. I love to be respected. And the applause of others is a great reward. We love it. It's a good reward. But Jesus is asking, don't you think there's something greater? Don't you think there's something greater? He says, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. He sexually says that twice. We've all probably heard this verse, Psalm 37, verse 4. It says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. What are the desires of our hearts? 
Is it more approval from others? Is it success or accomplishment or being needed? Or is it being creative or original? Is that what we really want? And is that what our hearts really want? Those are good desires, but are those the desires of our heart? I think Jesus knows better what the real desires of our heart are. And when he says, delight yourself in the Lord and you will receive the desires of your heart, I don't think he's talking about a raise. I think he's talking about something much more valuable. And here's what I think Jesus is after. At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, blessed are the pure in what? Heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. See, we can all agree that hypocrisy is born out of an impurity of our hearts. And when hypocrisy bleeds into our spiritual lives, it blinds us to seeing God himself. The act of prayer or fasting or giving, for example, practices that were designed to draw us closer to the heart of God, when used as a tool to impress others, actually do the opposite. They actually do the opposite of what they were designed to do. They were designed to draw us to God, but when we use them to please other people, we might please other people. But it never draws us near to God because we're blinding ourselves with our own hypocrisy. But the scriptures promise that if we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, we will find it. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Impurity distorts our vision, but purity of heart helps us see clearly what God wants from us. And the question for you and for me is, what is it that we want to see? What reward are we after? If you're after applause... Go for it. Go give and pray and be righteous and you're going to get all the applause you want. But you can pursue something greater, Jesus says. In Mark chapter 16, Jesus says, What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Now, all that sounds good and it sounds right, but how do we seek God this way? I want us to look at the life of Jesus because he is the model of what it means to seek Jesus in this way. He lived a life of constant communion with his heavenly father. And if you study the life of Jesus closely, you'll find it's impressive just how unconcerned he was with what other people thought about him. He didn't care. It was awesome. Like, you know, you get some people now and you're like, that person doesn't care what people, you're like, I don't care what people think of me. And you're like, then why do you have to announce how much you don't care about what we think of you? They want to be seen as like, you know, this bad person who like doesn't care anyway. Jesus like literally, he just didn't care what people thought of him. He didn't advertise it. He didn't boast in it. He just didn't care. I mean, the son of God spent 30 years in complete obscurity. 30 years without trying to be impressive, without trying to be noticed before he ever made himself known publicly. He never, you read through the Gospels, not once does he seem to be paying attention about how he was perceived by others. He never cares about interest groups. He never took opinion polls. He's never interested in building a public platform or gaining crowds. In fact, he would often subvert his own platform. When he healed people, they would be, I mean, they'd be pumped up. They're like, I was paralyzed. Now I can walk. I'm going to go tell everybody. And Jesus is like, Shh, no, 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 no. Don't say a word. When Jesus would become too popular in a town or a village and crowds would start showing up, he would leave that town or that village and go to the next. In Mark chapter one, it says that one time an entire city was at his front door wanting to be healed because they heard that he could heal people. You know what he did? He snuck out of the back of the house 
early in the morning so that he could go to, quote, an isolated place to pray to be with his heavenly father. One time there was a huge crowd and he was like, I don't really want to draw a crowd right now. What can I do to get him to go away? And so he stands up and he says, if you want to be my disciple, you have to eat my body and drink my blood. And everybody's like, all right, out, I'm out of here. They're like, not, I'm not into that. And his disciples, they were confused. They were like, Jesus, like, wh- why would you say that? Because they didn't know about the cross yet. And they're like, Jesus, why would you say that? And he was like, you want to leave too? In John chapter 12, there was an international delegation of some of the most powerful people in the world. And they wanted to meet with Jesus. And he brushes them off. Jesus was not impressed with power. He wasn't concerned with being in the room. In the room where it happens. The room where it happens. And he wasn't concerned with being seen with powerful people. He is the most unselfconscious person who has ever lived. And as a result, do you know how free he was? You know how much less anxious he was than you and me? You know how he was never rushed? He was never insecure. How was he able to do this? Regular times of prayer and fasting and solitude and time with his heavenly father. John 5, 19, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, so the son does likewise. Jesus says, my whole ministry is predicated on me spending time with, communing with, and paying attention to the father. This is how Jesus lived unconcerned with what other people thought. His life was lived only in reference to the heavenly father, not to the world. In fact, when he was 12 years old, he got lost and Mary and Joseph panicked. And they were like, where's Jesus? He ran away from home. We lost him. You know where he was? He's in the temple. But he says, didn't you know I would be in my father's house? They're looking for him on the playground. They're looking for him all in the streets. And he's like, didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? I'm in the temple. See, even as a child, his sole focus was on his heavenly father. Jesus, even during his ministry, there would be times where he would just disappear and his disciples would like, have to go find him. And he would always be off somewhere praying. He would routinely stop. I mean, Jesus was like a rock star. He's like on tour going from village to village. Crowds were listening to his teaching. And all of a sudden, he would, often he would tell his disciples, he'd say, you know what, let's take a couple of days break and let's just go to an isolated place to pray. And his disciples were probably like, well, Jesus, you're killing the momentum. We got crowds everywhere. They're hearing your message. And Jesus was like, no, we got to get away. We got to get attuned with the heavenly father. In the Garden of Gethsemane, just moments before Jesus would be crucified, just before his death, what was he doing? He was in a garden alone, praying to the Father. In the face of intense suffering, he knew that the only way he could survive was by being in the will of his Father. Scheduled, committed, intentional times of prayer, of solitude and fasting. And listen, if Jesus needed this to survive, how much more so do we? Jesus modeled a life for us, union with the Father, a life unconcerned with others. He wasn't anxious. He wasn't insecure. He knew who he was. And let me ask you, isn't that what you want? We're all anxious in this, in today. Don't you want to be less anxious? Don't you want to not be so wrapped up in what other people think of you? Jesus says, attune yourself to the Heavenly Father. 
To experience the freedom of Jesus, we need to commit ourselves to time spent with God, not so we can Instagram it, not so that we can get smarter so that we'll be more impressive at our growth group the following week, not so we can check it off the box, not so we can talk about it, but so we can see more of God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And then finally, the model of Jesus, we see that one of the ways he was able to maintain a life spent unconcerned with the approval of others was that he rested in the approval of his father. In Hebrews 4.15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You see, it's easy for us to look at this and say, yeah, of course Jesus didn't care what other people thought about him. He, he created those people. Like Jesus, like of course Jesus was unconcerned with everybody else thought. He's God. But Jesus, as he was fully God, but he was also fully man. And Jesus knew the temptation of, what it, of, of, the, of that, that, that tug to want to please everybody around him. And he knew, Jesus knew that at times following the crowd, pleasing the crowd would be so much easier than going the way of the Father. In fact, in Matthew chapter 4, Satan himself comes to Jesus and tries to tempt him. And one of the things, the final temptation that Satan tries to, to, to do to kind of get Jesus off of his mission was he takes him to the top of a mountain. And those who are going on our Israel trip, we're going to go to the, we're going to see that mountain. And it's this mountain where you can oversee all of Galilee and all of Israel, all of Jerusalem. And he says, look out at all those villages, all those towns, all those kingdoms. He says, you can have all of those. You can have all of those. They'll bow their knee to you. You can be the king of all of that. And Jesus says, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. And I read that and I go, how was Jesus able to resist that temptation? The answer lies in what happened immediately before he went out into the wilderness. Immediately before he goes out in the wilderness, Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River. And when he came up from his baptism, there was a voice from heaven from his father that said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus heard that voice, gets carried off into the wilderness, and Satan's like, you can have all the kingdoms in the world. He's like, why would I want all the kingdoms in the world? My father is pleased with me. Jesus got his identity first, and when he knew his identity, he was able to withstand all the temptations to try to gain it from other people. He knew that the identity given to him by the Father was far more valuable and far more eternal than any identity that the, the crowds could give him. Because the crowds are fickle. Hosanna one day, crucify him the next. Jesus knew that the approval of the Father is the only thing that truly mattered. And because of the gospel... Because Jesus took your place on the cross and because he gave you his life, everything the father says about Jesus is now true of you and me if we've placed our faith in Jesus. So now when we read the scriptures and God, the father says to Jesus, he says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. We go, I'm in Christ. That means that I'm the beloved child of God and he's well pleased with me. See, we all need to hear this voice, don't we? Because there are so many other voices in our lives that are confusing. There's people at work, there's people at home, people on the internet, 
There's people on the streets. There's people in our family. There's people. There's our own, our own expectations of ourselves. There's all these voices in our lives that make us feel crazy and make us feel inadequate. And there's all these voices, whether it's advertising or whether it's entertainment or whether it's whatever, trying to tell us who we are and who we should be. But the gospel says we need to crank up the volume so that the only voice we hear is the only voice that truly matters. You need to be skinny. I'm the beloved child of God. He's well pleased with me. You need to be conservative. I'm the beloved child. I'm the beloved child of God. He's well pleased with me. You need to be progressive. I'm the beloved child of God. He's well pleased with me. You need to look this way. I'm the beloved child of God. He's well pleased with me. You need to act this way. I'm the beloved child of God. He's well pleased with me. You need to be so religious. You need to preach the best sermon. And everybody needs to, and you need to get, I mean, everybody's got to love yours. I'm the beloved child of God. He's well pleased with me. He's pleased with me. I don't have to hit a home run with my sermon every week. You don't have to crush it at work to have value. You don't have to have a husband or a wife to be valuable. You don't have to have children to be valuable. You don't have to have money to be valuable. Or you don't have to have the right uh, family or background. Or you don't have to be seen at the right places to be valuable. You are the beloved child of God. He's well pleased with you. Who cares? Who cares what other people think of you? We've got to crank the volume of that up so loud so that we don't hear the voices of all these smaller, less meaningful, trivial voices that we hear in our heads. See, our temptation to please others, our tendency to drift toward hypocrisy is always rooted in not believing what is true about us. See, our hypocrisy and our posturing and our, our, our showing off always comes when we forget or we disbelieve that we are the beloved of God. And we start thinking, we forget that we're the beloved of God, so we start trying to be the beloved of everybody else. Close your eyes with me again. For am I now seeking the approval of others or of God? Or am I trying to please people? And then Paul says, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ.